Welcome to the Mike Litton Experience Podcast. Mike has over 31 years experience in real estate, finance, and investing. He's passionate about being a father, a teacher, a realtor, an investor, and a leader. Everyone has a story, and our passion is to help them tell it. And now, introducing the host of the Mike Litton Experience, Mike Litton. So what can you expect from the Mike Litton Experience? You can expect stories that will inspire, motivate, advice that will sharpen your focus, and expert information on real estate, finance, and market conditions. Juan Betancourt, thank you so much for joining us as our guest on the Mike Litton Experience. I cannot thank you enough for, for taking time out of your schedule to do this. I'm so excited about our time together. Like we talked about before we hit record, everybody has a story and our passion is to help them tell it. So with your permission, we're gonna start with where you were born and go all the way up to today. And then we can talk about all the amazing stuff that you're working on for today and or tomorrow, okay? Sounds great, thanks for having me, Mike. Appreciate you being here, buddy. So where were you born? Fairfax, Virginia, right outside of DC. There you go. I know where Fairfax, Virginia is. So did you grow up in Fairfax? Grew up on the other side of the border in Maryland um, in a place called Silver Spring. Okay. Uh, and so my father was a professor at the University of Maryland um, teaching economics. And my mother, uh, her family, they're both Cuban. So they left during the Cuban Revolution and her entire family settled at a place called Lake Barcroft, a really beautiful place uh, in Seven Corners, Virginia, where Fairfax is. Okay. So what was your favorite thing about growing up there? We lived on a dead end street, eight houses, no cars coming down and every house had dogs and kids. And so it was just kind of, uh, what was that movie? The Goonies, Yeah, you know, just kids playing around in the park. We, we, we there's a backyard with horses and then a forest and we could go for hours and it was all trees. And at the same time though, we were, you know, 30 minutes from the nation's capital. So it was kind of a metropolitan esque area but we kind of lived like felt like it was in the country it was great almost it was like an oasis right in the middle of all that it was an oasis and a very diverse uh group of people the street had probably eight houses and like eight nationalities wow that's cool that yeah. is so cool so you played outside until it was time until it was dark right it was yeah time in for dinner yeah, I'm, I'm at an age where we did not have mobile phones or smartphones or digital anything. No, um, so this was, you know, skipping rocks in the creek, catching uh, fireflies, uh, playing basketball, one of the neighbor's homes, um, you know, counting rocks for hours at end. <laughs> it was, uh, my kids probably would find it boring now, but uh, it was just pure innocence. It was great. We, we really you wouldn't on trade pressure. it for anything. I wouldn't trade it for anything. I actually wish I could create the same environment for my children, but I think it's impossible. Me too. Me too. Yeah. That's what I told my kids. I said, listen, the way I grew up, I grew up on a farm in Oklahoma and I farmed for nine years with my grandfather. And I told my kids, I said, if I had a time machine and I could control this, you'd go back and work for granddad. You'd go <laughs> right. back and you'd grow up exactly the way I did. Cause I, there's no way, there's no way I would trade it for anything. It was the most unbelievable way to grow up. And it was simple. There was no internet. There was no smartphones. There was no any of the stuff that you have today, right? You were outside and you were working. And you and the beautiful thing about it was 
in, when you farm for nine years, everything after that feels like you're playing hooky. <laughs> it's easy, right? Because right? it's all it's all easier. Everything else is easier than that. So yeah, I mean, it's I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. Even even relationships. I don't. We live in a neighborhood uh, that's structurally like the one I was in Maryland here in yeah. Miami, where I'm now. But you know, people are so busy now these days, and neighbors don't really get to know each other. Whereas when I grew up on a dead end street. Like I was going and saying prayer in the morning at my neighbor's house with their family for breakfast, yeah. just because their daughter and I would walk to school together. Like, oh, why don't you just come every morning at six and say have breakfast and say prayer with us? So yeah. I mean, I I grew up in the inside the kitchens and living rooms of my neighbors, talking with adults as a five year old, right? Like I I don't see five, seven, ten, fifteen year olds talking with their neighbors' parents, if yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> so. Have you ever Have you ever read the Popcorn Report? No, I like the name of it, but you ever get a chance read it? It's it's written by a lady by the name of Faith Popcorn, and she talks about this is written back in the '90s, mind you. Okay, so a long time ago, um, you know, not a long time ago now, right? Um, <laughs> but she was talking about a thing called cocooning, and we as human beings in the United States are closing off, right? So years ago, builders would build homes in the '50s and '60s. Yeah that had big, large porches out front. And if it didn't have a big, large porch that sometimes wrapped around where you could sit on the porch and you could interact with your neighbors and, and sit on a rocking chair and solve all the world's problems and all that kind of thing, you couldn't sell the house if it didn't have those things. Today, um, you can't sell a house with a front porch, it's right? Everybody it's wants what's in the back. Right. And we're building bigger walls and we're closing off and we come home and we open the garage door and we pull in and we close the garage door and we never see our neighbors. We never get to know them. That's it's a problem. problem. That's a problem. Okay. <laughs> a problem. But anyway, it's the popcorn report. It's a, it's a great book anyway. So where did you, so where'd you go to high school? So I went to a place called Springbrook high school. Okay. Public school. Um, 4A, it's largest uh, size high school, about 2,000 students or 2,400. So we have about six, 700 per class, if not. Your graduating class, yeah. Yeah. So did you have a favorite subject in high school? Everything. I was the most curious person you could imagine. So yeah. I dug into every subject, whether it was home economics and typing to AP calculus as a sophomore. I took six AP classes for college course credit by sophomore year. I mean, I, I, I was, you know, I ended up being valedictorian in my, my class. That's um, awesome. So, uh, I mean, I, I, you know, I never touched a cigarette or did drugs or drank yeah. alcohol during high school. Um, I, you know, my parents were Cuban. And so we had this tradition of, you know, maybe a story, <laughs> which as a young kid you hear mm -hmm. as a tradition, but yeah. We're the smartest people in the world. We're the most successful people in the world. Our country was the best ever. We're in exile. We've lost it all. Mm -hmm. It's now up to you, young man and young children, mm -hmm. to get back what we lost. Kind of like yeah. what the Jews have been able to instill in their youth. Yeah. Um, like, let's re reclaim what was taken from us. And so uh, I drank the cool, the Cuban Kool-Aid. And man, yeah. I, I all I did was work, study, and play sports to get you know the best I could be physically. I... I played soccer for the U.S. national team. I ran a 406 mile. I think I was the third fastest kid in the entire country. Um, and wow. when I say kid, third fastest person, not kid, yeah. including adults. Yeah. Um, and I played basketball for the ninth best basketball team in the country. And I was the only white person of, on a team of 18 black wow. players. Um, wow. So, I mean, I, I just excelled at everything. 
I liked everything. I excelled at everything. Now that's not the case today. I realized that you do actually like some things more than others. It took right. me like 20 years to realize that. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting. The standards that your parents give you, right? That's a big parenting lesson for people, right? You, your the kids will rise to your standards. You're living proof of it. It is the biggest problem with other ethnic groups in this country that don't have that. I won't yeah. say which ones, but yeah. um, there is a challenge today where some people play the victim and some people play, you know, we're great, which, you know, they're two extremes. Um, but I think every parent should set the goal and standard as you can be anything. You're the best. And yeah. um, I think that goes a long way. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. So after high school, where'd you go? So I went to Harvard um, for college, uh, uh -huh. played soccer there all four years, um, majored in economics. They didn't have business, so it was the closest thing to economics. Yeah. Um, and froze my butt off up in Boston. There you go. There you go. So you graduate from Harvard. Were you the valedictorian there too? No, I'm not. It's weird. You know, Harvard has a thousand six hundred students every year, and probably ninety percent were valedictorian or salutatorian. Right. So, it's a real. Uh, a lot of people get sad or depressed because they've been number one and the best and the smartest for as far as they can remember from the age right. of let's say twelve to eighteen, and now they're with all really smart people who were smarter than them, and as great as you thought you were. Mm -hmm. You're just average and yeah. to come into Harvard and become average. There's it's a punch in the face. So uh, adjustment. Yeah. Yeah. So I was lucky because even though academically I felt very average very quickly, I was still the best in the country at soccer. And so I was still on the front page of the Harvard Crimson because I was leading score as a freshman and we were top 10 in the country every year. So, you know, I, I was a big deal and I had the confidence uh, still because I was like, okay, well, I'm good at one thing. <laughs> yeah, here we go. They can't take that away from me. That's so, right. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool, man. So you leave Harvard, you graduate from Harvard. Where do you go from there? So the theme of Cuban, I'll be mentioning it. My whole life, I wanted to go back to Cuba because my family were some of the earliest settlers in Cuba and some of the first okay. presidents and they kind of ran the country for a long time. And in Latin America, when a family is like a founding family, mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of benefits to that. It's um, a legacy. Yeah, it's a legacy. And so my whole childhood up until 22, I thought I was living in exile waiting to go back to Cuba because no right. Cubans came to the US to stay. It was, it was right. like a step down for them. Um, there's a statistic that most people don't know. But before communism, before 1959, there's not one documented case of a person leaving Cuba illegally to the US. Think about that. So really poor middle class or rich. There's no way in hell you would go on that fisherman's boat and go 90 miles for three hours. I didn't know that. Waited you on the U.S. is going to be a lot worse than what you had in Cuba. I didn't People, know that. That's the most powerful statistic you should know or anybody should know about Cuba. It it had it had trains 10 years before the U.S. had trains. It had air conditioning before the U.S. It was the best place in the hemisphere to live from 1508 to 1905. Um, and between 1905 and 1959, it was equally as amazing as to live in the U.S. And so... Um, my whole goal was to get educated and go back to Cuba and get back what was lost or taken from us. However, um, Cuba wasn't open in 1993 when I graduated. And so yeah. 
there was a company, but Russia had just dropped them uh, from giving them billions of dollars of economic aid. So their GDP per capita went from like $1,000 per person down to 60. So abject poverty. Like oh. they went from Dominican Republic to Haiti level. Yeah. Of, and so everyone thought, oh, Cuba's going to break. Now's the time to go. And so Procter & Gamble, um, a really you know well-known company mm -hmm. who used to, all the US companies had their headquarters in Cuba before. So a lot of them were starting to announce, oh, we're going to go back to Cuba. And right. so Procter & Gamble had moved their headquarters to Puerto Rico in those 50 years. And they announced, we're going to go to Cuba now that it's going to open. So I hightailed, turned down jobs in investment banking and consulting in the U.S. to go to live and work in Puerto Rico with Procter & Gamble, mm -hmm. hoping that Cuba would open up in the next three or four years and I'd have a job in this great country that I was going to go help rebuild. Got it. Okay. So, so you were on a mission. I was on a mission at that point yeah. um, to, to go help rebuild Cuba. Uh, and that really was kind of my long-term plan up until 22. And then those four years in Puerto Rico, um, I be, I guess I just became wise or more um, practical and realized that four years of making no money, the Cuban people were just so kept down that nothing was going to change. And I realized I couldn't wait my entire life to go and have a life um, and wait for Cuba to open. So that's when I threw in the towel and gave up the dream of Cuba at the age of 26. Gotcha. I think I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask anyway. Who was the most influential person to you growing up? Oh, gosh. I learned from so many uh, mentors in life. Um, I think there's four. I mean, it's hard to separate. They're it's all, okay. you know. That's okay. So it doesn't have to be one. It, it, yeah. can be, it can be more than one. Yeah, so my... Uh, my my parents, I mean, I, I, to this day, they're my best friends. I respect them. I model my life, everything I do after them, my values. Um, I, I, they were my blueprint for 80% of everything I did that was family uh, or value-based and even education. And then there was my high school uh, teacher who was also my soccer coach. This is a guy who was on the cover of Sports Illustrated for soccer. He had taken Trinidad and Tobago all their players when he was in high school mm -hmm. to Howard university. And they became the most winning soccer team in the history of the U S more wow. goals, more wins, four years, champions every year. Turns out they got stripped of a lot of that um, because supposedly one player was older, but a lot of their ESPN just did a movie on it with uh, Spike Lee on 30 uh, under 30, another one called redemption. Uh -huh. um, so this guy named Ian Bain, he was my teacher, my coach, my mentor um, just saw him now 35 years later, uh, this couple months ago. Uh -huh. Um, he was great because he was just so inspirational for me to be an athlete. He treated me like a man when I was in high school, uh, got me, you know, you know, I was an upper middle class kid by the time I was in high school and that doesn't make it in the pros. Right. And yeah. so, you know, he, he had me train with Jamaicans and he's like, look, these guys hate you. They hate white people. This group of them that you're playing with, they're going to try to break your leg. Mm -hmm. um, they don't, you know, it's not personal, but I want you to touch that ball and already know what you're going to do with it. Because if you hold it for a second, which most kids do, they hold it too long. You're going to you're get your leg broken in Europe or Latin America or Caribbean. Right. So uh, he was instrumental for just learning about life and becoming an adult and responsibility and staying focused in soccer and just what he taught me in soccer. And then the last person would be my grandfather. He was he's actually the uh, inventor of modern day plastic surgery. So in Cuba, he used to graft pigs and learn that skin of pigs and skin of humans are similar. And so he figured out for the first time ever that if you cut in a straight line, it scars. Well, we all know that. But mm -hmm. if you cut in a Z or a W, 
Mm-hmm. It looks like Frankenstein for the first two months, mm-hmm. but it's if you cut it that way, it cuts along the lines of the cells, so there's no scarring. And so today, every plastic surgeon in the world follows my grandfather, Alberto Borges, Alberto Facundo Borges's technique of how to do plastic surgery. He's in every medical book in the world, in the U.S., everywhere, and oh. he's the founder of all modern-day plastic surgery, and he worked his butt off, and yeah. he... He was a world-class crew uh, rower. He would row every day. We'd go to his house. He was also that patriarch. He'd have, you know, 150 family members at the house every weekend on the lake. And somehow he let, he made everyone feel like they were his favorite grandson and cousin. And he was just one of those people that they just don't come along very often. Brilliant yeah. man, love, loving man, family man, um, and and an innovator, right? To, yeah. to be the pioneer of one of the 20 practices of medicine and be the most advanced person in the history of that. Yeah. Um, now everybody follows your techniques. There's, it's called W plasty and Z plasty after him. Wow. Those are the wow. four problems. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. That is so cool. You have such a legacy. I, I just love this. So, <laughs> So well, it's let's... pure luck because I didn't. I was born in the. Oh, that, I know, so. I know. You didn't. Choose People them, say they they I'm do it all it. themselves. I don't believe. Yeah. That. Well, but eighty you know, percent of mine was uh, lucky your... to be in the right place, at the right time. I understand, but to your credit, you took this legacy and you embraced it. You took this mission and you embraced it, right. and you made it your life. Some people don't, right? Some people go the opposite way. So this is a real credit to you that you took this on your shoulder. There's some stress here, right? You took this on your shoulders and you went to work, which is what your family does, right? Your family's hardworking, you know, yep. they believe in doing the right thing. And I love this. So, so you, so you, so you leave, you leave Harvard. You're now, you're now um, in the workforce, right? Yep. So you're at Procter and Gamble in Puerto Rico, right? Yep. Sort of waiting for Cuba to open back up. Then what happens? So when I realized that Cuba wasn't going to open, I thought, okay, what are you going to do with your life? Um, and so I moved, I transferred with Procter & Gamble to Cincinnati just to get back okay. to the U.S. Um, and all along, a, a plan B was if Cuba were not to open, Procter & Gamble had the highest acceptance rate to Harvard Business School. Okay. Um, and so it was it was Procter & Gamble, McKinsey, and Goldman Sachs. This is back in the early 90s. Yeah. Um, and so I, I knew that I'd be applying to business school. And at that point, you had to spend three or four years outside working from college before you could apply. Got so it. I went to Cincinnati knowing I'd probably apply with a couple of years, but um, went to headquarters, did another year, and then applied to uh, all the top business schools and ended up going to Wharton uh, Business School. Part of, be, part of the reason being um, not only had they been ranked top number one business school over Harvard for like three or four years um, just in those years, they'd always been number two for like 30 years. Yeah. They had just won top ranked business school and they just overtaken Harvard, but also because the alumni database, I'm all about relationships. I'm like, gosh, yeah. I can already plug into the Harvard database. Right. Wouldn't it be great to plug into the second biggest database, right. in history, which is Wharton. Right. Um, and, and they had a program called the Lauder Institute started by Estee Lauder, the founder, the Leonard mm-hmm. Lauder um, and Ronald Lauder. Those guys, when they were in the 70s and 80s, they couldn't find enough international-minded executives to take put it all over the world. So they were looking for MBA students who were smart, so they got into Warren, mm-hmm. who spoke at least three languages and had worked outside their home countries. Okay. Because then they could just, they funded this program called the Lauder Institute, it was a master in international studies. They could just go and recruit there. Right. 
for the Lauder Institute around the world, but then also right. all the other international organizations could also just recruit there. Um, and at the time, and I think for 20, 30 years, it made sense. Now it still exists, but you know, today you have amazing Chinese people who are just as smart as Americans. And I don't think a Chinese company is going to hire an American who speaks Chinese. Same with, you know, maybe a French company or a German or a Japanese or a Brazilian. So I'm not sure the relevance of it anymore, but it was pretty cool because everyone was the most international business-minded human being you could imagine. And yeah. my languages obviously were Spanish, Portuguese, and Italian. Yeah. Um, I ended up learning after uh, business school French though, working, we'll get to that. But but yeah, so uh, so now I speak five languages, including English, like like English. Wow! So you graduate with a with your master's, right? Yep. And in international studies, international studies from the Lauder Institute, and then uh, strategy and finance from the Wharton School, because it's two different degrees. I got you. Okay. Yeah, because so you, you start six you. months. Or, yeah, you you start six months early, yeah. and then every day you do four hours extra coursework. So the business school is from 8 a.m. to 2, and from 2 to 6, it's the master's international studies. Why does this not surprise me? <laughs> Miss, right? Yeah, well, it, well, the good news is I think Wharton by then had decided to do pass-fail. So there wasn't a stress like there was at Harvard to kind of get great grades. Um, and so it was hard. You worked because you could still fail. Like I did fail one class. Um, uh, I had to retake it. So it's not something you want to do. <laughs> it was accounting, actually. A lot of people right. failed that class. Yeah, um, I, I, I didn't like accounting either. So so you graduate with two degrees, right? One from the Lauder Institute, one from, from Wharton. And now you go where? From there, I go to... Oh, yeah. I got a call the last semester of, of business school from a guy who told me he was a CEO of Puma. And oh. I thought it was actually my roommate joking because he had a really funny, thick German accent. So I would go over to my roommate's room, uh, a guy named Jesse Stein, and I opened the door to see if he's, you know, fooling around with me. Right? On the phone? Yeah. On the phone. And he's totally asleep. And I'm thinking, wait a second, is this really the CEO of Puma, this right. sneaker company? Right. So, uh, so turns out it was. Um, you thought you were being punked. Yeah, I thought I was being punked. <laughs> <laughs> completely and uh wow. every day a ceo of a major company so what here's the interesting so in the summers you do a summer internship i worked at reebok and i worked for paul fireman the ceo of reebok yeah. um and i helped build reebok soccer right it ended up being a failure because even though we invested tons of money we hired like 20 people um paul fireman didn't realize he'd have to compete with nike who had just got into soccer in 1997 yeah. eight and so he ended up pulling the plug um, and, uh, I was like, I'm not going to go work for Reebok now that they're not going to really invest in Reebok soccer. Right. So, but then my work was noticed in the industry, because it's a small industry, the, the sure. sports world. Yeah. And so the CEO of Puma calls me and say, look, I'm 35. He goes, he, the CEO, I'm 30, I'm 35 years old. I'm Jochen Zeitz. Um, mm -hmm. and he had the thick accent and I'm the youngest CEO in German history in the stock exchange. I just took Puma from bankrupt. We just, uh, made money. And I need someone to kind of be like the ch president, chief operating officer, head of brand. I need a Procter & Gamble guy like mm -hmm. you to come in, hire five to 10 other Procter & Gamble people and relaunch Puma now that we have money. And so he goes, but I can't pay you. I'm going to pay you literally half of what, what an MBA makes. And right. But you will live in great hotels. You're going to be flying to a different country because Puma was only 300 employees. It had gone down from 14,000 when they were bankrupt to 300. And they only were four countries. 
Okay, well, they were the on shoestring. Yeah, they're yeah, they were, they were pun intended. Exactly. Yeah, right. So, so uh, I actually, went to I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to. It was part of that. Yeah. <laughs> so I went no to Germany. <laughs> I went to Germany and I was, uh, Jochen means John or Juan in German. So they called yeah. me little Jochen because I was like the little mini him. Oh. And uh, I went around, I opened the U.S. and I opened the U.S. office, built the U.S. office, hired 500 people, built and opened Brazil, um, based at the G7 countries and relaunched Puma, which is probably the greatest brand turnaround in 50 years and uh, uh, didn't make any money doing it. <laughs> but you were the you were the right guy at the right time. I was the right guy at the right time. It was a great learning, but at the same time in 99, well, 97 to 99, um, technology was taking off. And what yeah. was happening in Silicon Valley and the tech world was unparalleled in history. Yeah. So I had all these MBA friends from Wharton who had gone to these companies and they're worth millions of dollars. Right. They were literally stapling letters. They weren't even doing work. Here I was turning a real company around right. and I was making nothing. And yeah. so, and, and Germany had no stock options at the time. So I literally couldn't even get stock. Uh, um, and so um, I asked my boss for a massive raise and he said, no, you can never get a job like this anywhere in the world with this much power yeah. and experience. And which was true at, the, yeah. at that age, I was 32. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, well, then if you don't do that, I'm going to quit. And he said, well, let me make it easier for you. If you threaten me to quit, I'm going to fire you. And we were like, literally at a standoff. I'm like, wait a second. I just, did everything i just made this guy on the stock market famous like he, he right. it, it catapulted this guy's career right and there's no way he'll fire me he he needs me yeah. but unfortunately i did what they teach you at procter and gamble the main goal of procter and gamble is you put everything in your head and everything you learn into the process systems and you find great people and you make yourself replaceable right unlike badly run companies people have power and every individual you have to work through them at right. PNG. If you get it by a bus, it's like two days of a blip and it will keep going. Right. I, I wanted to build that culture at Puma. And so I hired all these people, trained everybody, put created processes. And he knew that. And so unfortunately he did the wrong thing with that. And he said, he goes, if you, you can't quit because I can fire you. And I said, you can't fire me because I did all this. He goes, no, but you did it so well. It's now part of the culture. So you're fired. And so I lost that job as I asked for a raise, which was the best thing that ever happened to me. You, you almost never did you get a job, Juan. You go, well, so I went to go to work in technology. And so yeah. I went went to work uh, at a company. I didn't even, did not even understand what they did. It was a crazy man that everybody was scared of named Tom Siebel, S-I-E-B-E-L. Yeah. He, had, he was employee number four at Oracle and built it into like a 20,000 person monster company. Right. And he had an idea to do, to manage with and automate all the processes around sales. He was the head of sales from day one for, for Larry Ellison. Right. Let, let me, let's use software to automate like the pipeline and let's call it customer relationship management and connect sales, marketing and customer service. And Larry Ellison said, no, let's just keep selling databases. So Tom left or got fired, who knows? And he started Siebel. And I didn't really understand what they were doing, but I did my research in every MBA school. Siebel Systems in San Mateo, California, 30 minutes south of San Francisco, was hiring more MBAs from Harvard, MIT, Stanford, Wharton, Chicago than any company in the world, more than McKinsey. And every student at all those companies, at all those schools, 90% of graduates were all applying to this one company. Hmm. No, no, no other company would get more than 10% of a graduating class. Right. So I said, I don't know what this guy's making. I don't know what he's building. I don't know what it is. 
But everybody says, this is the most powerful thing that's happening in technology. And I went right. to go work. I was employed, I think, 220. Okay. Okay. And one year later, we were 12,000 employees. We had 12 million in revenue when I started. Two years later, we we're 3.8, no, $2.8 billion. Imagine that kind of growth. No company's ever done that in less than five to 10 years. We did it in two. Um, so it was great. It was it was up and fast and it even went down faster because I, I mean, I wasn't doing anything with responsibility like I had at Puma. Like I was just yeah. like, I was, I was a business development manager for whatever that means. And turns out, we all got equity. That's why you get all these MBAs there. And he had the smartest right. MBAs in the world. And our equity, and because of the growth of the company and the value of the company, my equity was worth, I think, around $35 million in three and a half years. Wow. So on vesting, I would vest 5% every quarter. You didn't sell it because every quarter it was up like another like right. million dollars. So It'd be crazy to sell it. Why yeah. would you sell it? when? In, right. And even when the market tanked in 01, we kept going up. And so yeah. for sure, I'm not selling all the yahoos and the flip-flops and the beanbags and the right. dogs that work. All those dot-com dot things com are going to bust. Yeah. This is a real company. So a yeah. year later, we missed our earnings for the first time in seven years. Oh my gosh. And I had a sell order for Tuesday for I think 30 million of my 35 million because that's what was vested. Mm -hmm. And the market for us tanked the day we missed that earnings on Friday. So I lost everything, 30 million of vested stock wow. in a day. Oh my God. And, uh, and so I left Siebel Systems at that point. So yeah. he fired he fired uh, 10,000 employees out of 12,000 in one day. Wow. Yeah, as fast as it goes up, it goes down faster. Yeah, no kidding. Oh, wow, that's crazy. Yeah, so but I, I got to work with some of the smartest people who today basically run Silicon Valley. Everyone yeah. from Siebel Systems went off and ran and yeah. did great things at other software companies. Yeah, that's understandable considering their what they're what they experienced, right? What their resume had to look like, what their education background, everything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you pretty much know everybody that does everything in Silicon Valley. That's awesome. In a way, <laughs> that's awesome. So you leave Siebel. Where do you go? So I leave Siebel and I go to. Um, I got an interesting call from a headhunting firm, uh, one of the top search consulting firms called uh, uh, Russell Reynolds. And they're like, hey, you speak um, Portuguese, Spanish, Italian, and English, but do you speak French? I go, no. They're like, can you learn it in six months? And I said, I'm pretty sure I could if I like was immersed. Like, okay, there's a large French company. It's one of the largest retailers in the world. They own all these different concepts. So do it yourself. It's the third biggest in the world after Home Depot and mm -hmm. uh, uh, the other Lowe's. ones. Yeah. Lowe's. Yeah. Um, they own the third biggest hypermarket after Walmart and Tesco and the head of Carrefour. It's called the... Uh, uh, the, the do-it-yourself is called Juan Merlin. The other one's called Oshan. And then they own the largest sports company in the world, 10 times bigger than Nike. Wow. $50 billion. It's called Decathlon, Decathlon. Um, and they're, they they bought this $500 million, 20-store division in, in Boston called MVP Sports and a division in Boston. And they're losing money. They need a CEO, but they only hire from within. And you go to France for between one and five years, learn French, move up the system. Nobody's going to know you're a future CEO. It's like an incognito job. And if you fail, you're fired, you get nothing. If you succeed, you'll be the CEO, first foreign company to come in the US and open 800 stores. Um, would you wanna do that? And we'll pay you a lot of money in cash. I'm like, okay. 
And so I went to France and uh, I was fluent in French within three and a half months. It was crazy. I couldn't believe I did it. Wow. <laughs> and uh, before I knew it, I was uh, on the operating committee of the company with 200,000 employees making decisions uh, for, for, I think they had 37 countries, uh, 10,000 stores. Wow. Um, and then be, kept, you know, top department, top store, top region. Then I, they sent me back to the U.S. as CEO, became CEO of the U.S., uh, made the money for the first time in 12 years turned around all the stores, same with Brazil, and then uh, tried to open them one store, one mega store, uh, their true format. And then I got vetoed and then put an offer another, got vetoed and offer another, vetoed. Turns out that they weren't willing to spend the money that it costs to have real estate in the US. Oh, wow. They, they wanted to spend $18 a square foot and real estate was going for about 45 a square foot right. in the areas that they wanted it. Right. And so those five years were, of a, and I, I work, it's retail. I mean, I'm yeah. unloading trucks for the first five years, 6 a.m., 5 a.m. every day, seven days a week. I mean, this was, they're paying me a lot of money and I want to get back to the U.S. You can only live in France and take it so, for so long. Right. Um, and so, uh, I mean, I, I lived an hour from Paris and never made it to Paris. Wow. I mean, we're talking seven days a week without, you know, 18 hours a day. But it was amazing. I'm not complaining. Yeah. I became a great retailer, a great operator. Well, you're and, uh, time, yeah. French and yeah. learned about a great people in France. Um, and uh, and I came back to the USCO, succeeded, but closed it all down. And um, that chapter ended a little bittersweet, um, but it was a great experience. I think all experiences are great. You know, oh, yeah. I believe the universe is always in perfect balance, no matter what outcome happens. Yeah, it's not happening to you. It's happening for you. Bingo. I, right. There's a term for that. Yeah. Pronoia. Yeah. And you're either, gonna, you're either going to learn, succeed, or you're going to learn one of the two. Yes. Yeah. People are paranoid that things that have bad luck, whatever. I believe in pronoia. Everything is there for you to take from. And, and yeah. it's a, it's a planet of abundance yeah. um, and everything's exactly where it should be. And it, it, it's all perspective. Yeah, I totally agree. So you leave there or actually right, shut it down. Where do you go from there? At that point, I was tired of the corporate Right, the Reeboks, the Pumas, the Siebels, and all these ups and downs, and the politics, and and the politics, and the politics. Mm -hmm. So I was tired, and you know I hadn't really dated in like ten years. All I did was work all those time, right? right. And I was still in amazing shape, so I never touched alcohol or cigarettes or anything. So I mean, I was still running like I was running marathons, sub three hours. I mean, I was like, like the best mental performance, physical performance, and career performance. And I knew I wanted to get married. I mean, at the end of the day, my whole life goal was to have a family. So that was still. Sure. you know, the box that I saw the check. Yeah. I wanted to make money before then. And I had some money from that to Calphon experience. But um, so I was like, like, what am I going to do now? What am I really good at? And I've always been great at connecting people and understanding people. Um, it's like my superpower. And mm -hmm. so, you know, you could plot me literally anywhere in the world, China, mm -hmm. Afghanistan, and like within like six months or a year, I'll be like organizing and influencing and leading and, and, and I, and understanding society, culture, and people at a different level. And so I said, what can I do? And it arced back, arced back to uh, my college years when I went to Office of Career Services at Harvard and the woman there said, you should think about being a headhunter. And I didn't know what that meant at the time. And I, I kind of laughed at it. It was like, why would I go to Harvard to be a headhunter, to right. be a recruiter, right, um, for executives? Well, I thought more and more about it and I started contacting them. And then I learned that these people make between three and $5 million a year. Yeah. Like the best racket out there. Yeah. Um, and they weren't even doing a lot of the work. They had all these like minions doing the work for them. Yeah. And it was all based on relationships. So I thought, oh my God, I'm really good at hiring. I'm really good at, at leadership and team building. Mm -hmm. I see that aspect of human capital. And so basically my first career was 
operating doing. My second career was really human capital and leveraging relationships and understanding psychology. And so um, that was like the next 15 years leading up to my current software company. And so I went to become the youngest partner at Hydric and Struggles in New York City, finding executives for strategy roles, IT roles, and retail roles. Mm -hmm. um, so that was great. I did that four years in New York. Then I moved to Miami and did uh, went to Corn Ferry for four years. And then I did my own search firm called Gonza Executive Search for four years. So it was like this 12-year big chapter around executive search, making lots of money and um, doing what I loved. I mean, I didn't even see it as work. And yeah. you know, it was amazing. That's cool, man. That's cool. So where are you today? Yeah. So after that 12 years, I um, got really into spirituality and uh, here in Miami and in all my deep meditations, uh, which is probably the way, best way of describing the type of spirituality I was doing, not religious, but but uh, meditative, more like a Buddhist. I became like a Buddhist. Mm -hmm. um, I got a message that I I spent my whole life becoming like a warrior of business, becoming a wise man of so many things and so many cultures that I had been prepared to change the world and literally cocooning to your earlier comment and getting a nice apartment with a beautiful view and just, you know, meeting, you know, girls and having fun and, you know, not caring about the world and just, like I started to drink, but it wasn't like I was, you know, going crazy, you know, but, but just having fun was not what life was supposed to be. And that right. I was missing the point right. and that I was supposed to, I had been given all these gifts to do something greater. And that in the next month, I'd be presented with a business idea um, that I should pursue because that would be my purpose. And I, you know, I scoffed at that. I'm like, yeah, whatever. I'm like yeah. really the universe just told me that my purpose is going to be handed to me. And right. sure enough, though, within four weeks, I met someone who met someone who introduced me to somebody and human intelligence was born. And uh, there were a couple other co-founders. It's a convoluted story, but long story short, I got involved with human intelligence mm -hmm. first as an investor, then as an operator and then CEO, which is now what I do now. It's been seven years. Um, and I wanted to create a tool to improve hiring so people could find through psychometric matching, mm -hmm. like, like a personality test. Yeah. The jobs and careers where they'd be happiest, where they'd perform the best and where they wouldn't get fired and where companies would not have all this turnover and where they could perform the best, right? A double bottom line where everyone's happy working, everyone's happy at the company, um, every team is operating better. Um, and so we actually built that for four years and grew it to a couple million dollars in revenue, 20 employees, but then COVID happened. And I would have loved to have been a restaurant because they didn't lose their demand for hunger or food. Right. They just had to figure out how to get there. A big challenge, right? Right. right. <laughs> but at least they still had a chance. Right. We lost all revenue within three months because nobody in the right mind was going to be paying a monthly invoice for recruiting software when right. all they were doing was firing. And so we lost right. all revenue, fired 16 employees. And so I had to pivot. And so what we became, which is now what we do, is human intelligence for smarter collaboration, which is the world's first tool that basically does what Grammarly does. Right. Grammarly takes grammar and vocabulary and puts it at your fingertips, which makes yeah. it really powerful. They're yeah. worth $15 billion. We do the same as Grammarly, but instead of grammar, we give tips on how to communicate with somebody, how to work with somebody, how to lead somebody, how to run a meeting, how to run training, all in your workflows, all in your Slack, in your email, in your G Suite, in your Outlook, in your Teams, in your virtual meetings, so that in any moment, you can be and work better with others, lead others better. So every team performs better. Is this based on psychometrics? 
It's based on psychometrics. You give a, a 10 minute test, a link yeah. to 50,000 employees on a Monday and 50,000 employees that afternoon are all like an IO psychologist. Whereas the old model for 50 years with DISC, predictive index, train finders yeah. and all these other tools, yeah. you use it during the workshop and you pay 20K for that workshop. Right. The workshop does not include the other 50,000 employees. So it's also a waste. If you do remember it, you don't right. find the information. It's a complete waste of money. $3 billion industry, completely wasted. Um, two uses, maybe. Our tool gets used about 20 times a month by every employee. So about 250 uses. The power and the value of what we've done, taking psychometrics to a whole nother level, is two uses versus 250. We've even incorporated AI where you write an email to anybody in the company, click our button in your email, it rewrites the email the way that Mike Litton likes to read and, and understand information. And so you can imagine AI's recommending to you in meetings what you're doing right and wrong and yeah. how to get the most engagement. Um, it's really HR technology and AI that makes work more human, yeah, not less human. It does not replace people. It enhances people, makes everyone happier. Well, it helps with retention, right? Helps with retention, and, and reduces turnover. Yeah, it helps you communicate effectively the way they want to be communicated Correct. with. Like I've been teaching DISC for 32 years. Oh, so you know this world. Oh, absolutely. Right. And so I would, and I've been teaching this for a very, very long time that it's not about you as the leader. It's about the people you're leading. Right. And if you care more about those people than you do about yourself, that's the number one fundamental rule of leadership is you have to care more about them than you do about yourself. So you want to, like, for instance, with an I dominated personality type, their single greatest fear is no. So you never say no to those people, right? So what, what you what you did for 30 some years with DISC, yeah. imagine the magic that occurred during your training, Yeah, but you weren't scalable to 50,000 people. Right. Imagine in one day, there are 50,000 Mike Littons whispering or yeah. popping up in the software in any communication platform. Yeah. It's funny what you say about leadership at Procter & Gamble, more CEOs have come from there to oh, run yeah. Fortune 500 than any other company. The one thing they trained me was exactly what you were saying. And it was my big wake up call. Because here I was this like, you know, egocentric, hot Harvard alum at Procter & Gamble thinking I'm the best, right? And I got promoted to manage my team of assistant brand managers. I was now gonna manage five people. So zero management experience to five. My boss pulls me and said, hey, congratulations, Juan. You just got promoted, but guess what? Now the hard part begins. I'm like, what do you mean? I'm I'm the boss now. I don't have to do all the yeah. work. He goes, no worse. Doing the actual analysis is easy. Yeah. Leadership is hard. He goes, you now have to change for every subordinate and you can't just be one way. You have to have five versions of one. You have to be willing to adapt. And I thought that's crazy. Yeah. And so what we do at Human Intelligence allows every leader and every person to adapt to others, understand others, and kind of like you do in marriage, yeah. come to the middle, not in six months, but in any moment of contact. That is amazing. That is absolutely amazing. I love this. I love this. We got to so get it out. This, so you've been doing this now, this version, right? You've been you've been with them for since COVID. years, right? But since COVID, you changed the, the makeup, basically, right? So people are literally getting... They're literally, not only are they able to have their, their emails rewritten the way that that recipient needs to hear it, that'll most effectively communicate with them. You, They also get tips in their Slack about different ways to reach these people. 
Yep. If you're in Slack and you're working with five new developers in three different countries, which often yeah. software engineers, it'll say, hey, this group are all decisive. Mary is deliberate. Right. So hey, everybody don't get pissed off. If Mary takes a little time to answer, she's not doing it on purpose. There is no right or wrong. You five are not right just because the majority are decisive. Right. There's a duality in life. And for every behavioral trait, there's an equal and opposite behavioral right. trait. Same with yeah. motivations, values, and work energizers. And so across these 28 attributes, we never have a high or a low because, you know, with disc, there's high and low. Nobody yeah. can feel bad. Everyone is perfect the way God made them. This just allows everyone to understand that. Like if Mike Lytton is doing a training with 10, and 10 people and they are all conceptual and don't like data-driven approach, you would approach that training very differently right. than if they were data-driven. Same if right. they're all decisive versus deliberate. Yeah. Um, same if they like to work in a team versus self-study. Probably self-study, send them materials beforehand, not just yeah. lay it on them in the meeting, right? So yeah. imagine if everyone could just understand each other as if they've been married to people for 10 years, but every day, every minute for everyone in the company. Well, the best thing about it is these people get an opportunity to appreciate the strengths of that other person. Yes. Right? That's the best thing about this, about this training is when I teach DISC, I'm teaching them who they are. And then I'm teaching them un the unique capabilities of the other three behavioral styles. Right. Right. So yes. there's certain things you never do with them. And then there's certain things you always do with them. Right. And you need to understand that like an S for instance is slower, right? They're more deliberative. They're more, careful they're you know these are the people who get up at two o'clock in the morning and check their bank balance after they looked at their statement <laughs> three hours before right i mean it's like right but they go in and they check just because it change doesn't work for them so you don't show up to them and go hey, hey baby we're going to close in eight day eight days right these people go you know cataclysmic right i mean it's it's you with me so it's that's beautiful because one of the things that i think is lacking especially in leadership is the education where leaders can appreciate what different people bring in behavioral style to the equation. Right. right. So somebody like me, I know you, I know you know what I am, but somebody like me, who's all D right. I've got people that are on my team that are C's that I dearly love. I dearly love those people, but their favorite thing to say to me, one is you can't do it like that. Oh wow! Right, because yep. I haven't seen a I haven't seen a rule or a law that I didn't want to bend and or break, <laughs> right? Because I'm focused, I'm like a bull in a china closet, and I want to get it done. Right, this needs to get finished. Right, well, well, I don't rest. I don't rest until it's done. So it's interesting. It's a great use case where where you've been training on the disc, which is one of the frameworks and and of of yeah. behavioral. Part of also the challenge of these these assessments and these personality tests, whether it's DISC, Train Finders, Predictive Index, Caliper, Berkman, et cetera, is that you usually have to get someone who's certified. And yeah. you have to memorize letters like D, S, I. And the audience right. here might think, what do these letters mean? Right. We've also taken all that away yeah. where you don't, we don't, there's no more need for the certified HR team or the certified right. trainer. And so we're trying to disintermediate the need to, to train and learn. We've had some clients say, oh my gosh, but it was so painful to learn DISC or so painful for us. And I'm thinking, well, the, you don't have to go through pain anymore. Now right. the tool will just give you a tip. You don't even need yeah. to know what the other person is. It'll yeah. just say, put more information here or put yeah. less. Yeah. <laughs> I've never been happier to be obsolete in my life. <laughs> this is perfect, man.
This is perfect. I love this. That is awesome. That is awesome. Congratulations. I'm yeah, happy. We can have a whole side conversation. I didn't realize that you were an expert in all that. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I don't tell people, right? I mean, I, I did, I told you, but I don't, I don't, I don't broadcast it. So, um, but it's fun. You know, it's, I mean, I, I love to people watch, which I'm sure you do too. Right. No, I love no to people watch and I'm like, Oh, there goes a D right. Or, Oh, look at that. eye, right. They're so sparkly. Right. You know, <laughs> so yeah, man, that's, that is wild. So that's really cool what you're doing. And then is there anything else that you're working on currently? No, I mean, that and uh, a three and a five-year-old with my wife. Oh, that, that's a whole another family. Oh, congratulations. Product. Yeah. So I have a 23-year-old and a 25-year-old, so I'm on the other end of it. Yes, I that time can't come soon enough. So, I, I, I miss when they were that age, man. <laughs> everyone always looks back and says, I miss the younger years, but I don't yeah. know. The diapers and the not eating off a menu and yeah. hard to travel. I, I can't wait till they're like seven to 13. Yeah. Um, well, it's, like as they get older, it gets more fun. Okay. Yes. And everyone says go, that. Like one, yeah, you get every year for the rest of your life, yeah. it's going to get better and better. Yeah. Isn't that you cool? get to go to more sporting events, all that kind of stuff. And then one day like this, they're gone. They're off to college. They're no longer in the house. They've got their first job out of college. They've got girlfriends. They've got boyfriends. They, right. And it's like, ah, really? Right. It goes by so fast, right? There's At a that point you pick up pickleball, Brad right? Paisley sings <laughs> called Blink. Don't blink, you know, yeah. of, right? So yeah, that's what it feels like. It feels like I it feels like I blinked. So I am so excited about what you're doing. And I'm so excited about human intelligence. This is really, really cool. And you've now, after all of this, the, and you've been prepared for this your whole life. You know that, right? This is really cool what you're doing. And I cannot thank you enough for being our guest on the Mike Litton experience. Now, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to send me a link that we can put in the description. So if people want to reach out to human intelligence, they can reach out directly to you. Is that okay? Sure. You might put it in right now to the chat. Yeah, so go ahead and put it, put it, go ahead and email it to me and we'll put it in the description. Okay. Okay. I appreciate you, buddy. It was so great to get to know you. I truly enjoyed every minute of this. Mike, thanks so much for uh, sharing my story with your audience. I really appreciate it. And I'm I appreciate you, buddy. Okay. You take care. It was good to get to know you. Thank you. Take care. We hope you enjoyed another episode of the Mike Litton Experience. If you did, do us a favor. Smash that subscribe button. Tell your friends, family, and coworkers about our program. And wherever you get your podcasts, please leave us a rating. It helps us to connect with quality people just like you. And that's a wrap. Another episode of the Mike Litton Experience in the books. Reach out to Mike on Instagram at Litton Realty. Want to meet with Mike? Check out Calendly.com slash Rio 760.